Truth Espresso, episode 160. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of Truth Espresso. And I'm continuing and concluding a series of episodes asking the question, is Jesus like Dr. Octopus? And that question is part of a series of questions asking, is Jesus like a superhero, or in this case, a supervillain, to illustrate errors in church history? These questions are addressing how was Jesus super or divine and how was he human and how do the two relate to each other? So how is the orthodox position about Jesus Christ that he's one singular person of the Son with two full and distinct natures united in that person? particularly the divine nature and a human nature, and that without any compromise with the natures, he is fully expressed in one person so as to be the one mediator between God and man, being fully God and man himself. And each of the superheroes that we've asked about all expressed one particular error, all illustrated one particular error in church history that compromised one of those natures or compromised the idea that he is one singular person or compromised the idea that the Son is a distinct person from the Father, so compromising the Trinity. And if you're just tuning in and you haven't listened to other parts of this question or other of the episodes, I would highly recommend you listen to them so you get a fuller picture of church history and what we're talking about here. We did an exhaustive walk through history in the 7th century dealing with the question of monothelitism. Now, what is monothelitism? It's the idea that Jesus had only one will. And if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, perhaps that question wouldn't strike you as odd because all of us have one will, right? But then for Jesus to be fully God, fully man, the question is, well, then what about his will? And we talked about how the orthodox position is that Jesus has two natural wills, the will of the human nature and the will of the divine nature. And we illustrated the problem of monothelitism by having Dr. Octopus, especially his incarnation (laughs) in the movie Spider-Man 2 in 2004, in which there was an inhibitor chip so that Dr. Octavius, by his will, could control the super arms. But then when the accident happened, the inhibitor chip was destroyed and then only the one will of the arms controlled the full creature of Dr. Octopus. Now he's a human with the divine nature 
the arm harness, and only the will of the divine nature, the arms, was active. His human will was dormant or suppressed, and in some cases of monothelitism and some explanations of it during this controversy in the 7th century, that's what they described. First, it was the idea that Jesus only had one will, a personal will, and that the will was the component of personhood, but then that posed problems with the harmony of the will of the persons of the Trinity, and basically that argument for monothelitism got shot down, recognizing that the will, as far as potential actions, comes from the nature. (laughs) So the Orthodox were able to disprove that, and then later on, the argument for monothelitism was, well, yeah, we believe that he had two natural wills that existed in some sense, but only the divine natural will was active, and the human one was kind of like asleep or dormant. It just wasn't active. It wasn't being used. And that way, they could have one will, so they kept inching closer to orthodoxy in some way without wanting to cave in because there was a political desire for uniting the Byzantine Empire to make the Orthodox and the Monophysites, those who believe that Jesus only had one fused nature, one divino-humano nature, trying to get everyone to be one big happy family and all pay taxes to the emperor and to make sure that the empire is secure against threats of invasion from the Persian Sassanids or the Muslims, which was a new religion at this time. And we talked about the history of that on the last episode and how the Third Council of Constantinople concluded and how Pope Honorius I, or Honorius I, who was Bishop of Rome, who died about 40 years before the council, how he caved in to Sergius's explanation. Sergius was the Bishop of Constantinople, who, along with Emperor Heraclius, tried to propose a one-energy or one-will idea on the empire, and Honorius I, in his letter, said, We confess that Jesus has one will. And we don't really know its speculation as to whether Honorius was knowingly complicit in a political compromise or whether he was confused, whatever. But as we shall see in this episode, (laughs) there was not a lot of favoritism toward Honorius as the Orthodox position was defended. And we're going to see how this addresses the dogma of papal infallibility as it was developed in the Roman Catholic Church, especially as it was formulated and decreed at the First Vatican Council in the 19th century. But first, want to look at why not monothelitism? Why was it only a political compromise? Why couldn't it be acceptable? And we did talk about that a little bit on the last two parts answering this question, but I really want to make the case strongly here that just like all of the other errors, it compromises substitutionary atonement. And that was always the question with every one of these Christian logical challenges. Every one of these questions is Jesus like this. 
Whether it was Arianism or Apollinarianism or Eutychianism or Nestorianism, whatever, the question is, how can that Jesus save me? Could he be my substitute? Because you cannot have truth about Jesus that can be, well, he could be like this, he could be like this. Those who would ask that question or would be willing to say, yeah, it doesn't really matter so much what he's like, you know, the makeup, the identity of Jesus— are ones who likely haven't thought about the whole purpose of Jesus being here. They haven't likely thought deeply about substitutionary atonement. Because if you take substitutionary atonement out and Jesus came just to be a good moral example or be a good teacher or kind of buck the system in a way, and that, you know, or his death was just some form of an expression of love, but it wasn't a penal action. It didn't actually pay for sins. And what does that really mean? that he has to be the perfect lamb of God, an expression of how he's the perfect human, and that he has to be a substitute in every logical sense, in every scriptural sense necessary, then it really does matter who Jesus is. And you can't compromise that, because then you compromise substitutionary atonement. But for those who are willing simply to speculate, thinking philosophically, thinking metaphysically, Avoiding the question of substitutionary atonement, but just trying to deal with the how of things. How does this work? Rather than why is it necessary, then they can be prone to errors. And so as we wrap up this discussion of the identity of Jesus by asking the questions, is Jesus like any of these superheroes or the supervillain Dr. Octopus? I present to you that the importance of Christianity, the questions that Christianity answers to the world is always the question of what is true and why is that necessary? Christianity should not be driven by philosophy. It should not be driven by speculation and theorizing and meandering around in the metaphysical, just wondering Well, I can't believe something if I can't understand how it works. Christianity, the how it works, is one of those secret things that belong to the Lord our God. How it works is not for us to understand, or we don't hinge our beliefs on being able to dissect how something works metaphysically. Christianity simply explains what is true and why it's true, why it is necessary for this to be true. And so Jesus Christ, what is true is that he's one person with two natures, divine and human. Why that is true, why he came, why he has to be that way is substitutionary atonement. That is what Christianity is about. And when we start to get into, when we entertain in our minds that our belief in something requires us to understand the metaphysics of it all and how it must work, that can lead down the road to problems. Or, like in the case of this issue, whether we can believe something because it would be a good meet-in-the-middle compromise or unite an empire, that's never a good reason for faith. Faith is... (laughs) 
something that is held on to no matter what. It is the definition of reality. It is what must be true. And because we are not gods, we are not God, we are human, we are bound to God's rules, whether we understand something in a metaphysical sense doesn't really matter. All that matters is whether we proclaim the truth. And what we can grasp is to explain what is true and why it's necessary not to explain this is how humanity and divinity metaphysically function in one person. It's not for us to understand, it's only for us to proclaim and to explain why it's necessary that it be that way. So, substitutionary atonement. Why is monothelitism a compromise of substitutionary atonement? And I've read this passage before. I've actually read this passage dealing with the question of Apollinarianism because, as we shall see, monothelitism is like Apollinarianism light. It is kind of like a slimmed-down form of Apollinarianism. And those who were Orthodox during this controversy in the 7th century recognized that and explained that and stated it, we will see. So if Apollinarianism is wrong for certain reasons, reasons, if monothelitism suffers from the same problems, then it's wrong for the same reason. It cannot be orthodox. It's not an acceptable formulation of the identity of Jesus Christ. So Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 18, it says, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, referring to Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same. So Jesus was just as much human as we are, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or comfort them that are tempted." So this is a very clear passage that explains the incarnation of the Son, that he took on a full human nature. And I've explained this in previous episodes. The word there for took part, you know, is a similar word that you also find a a different form of it in Philippians chapter 2, the Carmen Christi saying that he was taking the form of a servant. So, Jesus, the Son, didn't lose any of his divinity. He simply added, he took on a full human nature. He took on, it says here, flesh and blood, describing the human nature. It says that he took on him the seed of Abraham. So, Abraham didn't give birth to an alien or something that wasn't 100% human. And it says that it behooved him to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he can be a merciful and faithful high priest to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. There's a direct statement there that he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he can pay for sins. 
And it says then, for or because that he suffered being tempted, he's able to comfort those who are tempted. So the incarnation was necessary for Jesus to suffer and be tempted. And that's part of the whole picture, the whole package, as it were, for him to be a substitutionary atonement and to pay for sins. And how could he be tempted if he didn't have a human will? And that's the question that the Orthodox proposed against the monothelites, the one-willers. Let's also look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. In the comfort here, comparing Jesus to uh, Melchizedek here, it says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So the reality that Jesus had to be tempted and to be an example and to not sin was that he had to be genuinely tempted by taking on a human nature, including the natural human will. He couldn't discard that. He couldn't ignore that. Just as Hebrews chapter 2 said that the incarnation was so that he could suffer and be tempted, that's what also makes him be able to be a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And what example is it if Jesus were to just waltz onto earth, just wearing a cloak of flesh and not actually experience human temptation? Uh, he was sinless and that's how he can be our example. But, you know, how could he be our example if he wasn't genuinely tempted along with us? Like the temptations of the human nature had no effect on him. It was just a mirage. You know, it was just an act, as it were, that he was just acting through a flesh body, but he didn't have the full nature, including the will. That would not make him a faithful high priest. That would not be an example. That means he he couldn't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He couldn't be tempted. Therefore, he couldn't be our substitute. Also, Hebrews. Yes, there's a lot of good passages about the incarnation in the epistle to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9 says, referring to Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, referring to his, you know, his incarnation on earth before he ascended to heaven, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect or complete, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So, we clearly have the statement here that Jesus, in the days of his flesh, you know, his incarnation before he was resurrected and glorified here, he offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him, unto God. So, this is an expression of the human will, you know, and it expresses sorrow, crying, tears, fear. And prayers and supplication, once again, this is the human will in worship to God. And though he were a son, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. So, if he didn't have a human will, how could he learn obedience through suffering? 
And then in verse 9, when it explains that he became the author of eternal salvation, so being the author of salvation utterly depends on him having a human will. And now, let me read uh, uh, two quotes from Gregory of Nazianzus against Apollinaris, because monothelitism suffers similarly to Apollinarianism. And so, as Gregory of Nazianzus argued against Apollinaris, the Iron Man idea that Jesus just had a human body, but he didn't have a human noose, including a will or, you know, mind or whatever— Gregory says, For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. So if Jesus lacked a human mind, then according to Gregory's logic, he could not heal our mind. So that which is not assumed or taken upon him is not healed by his incarnation and atonement. And so, if Jesus didn't have a human will, then he could, you know, at best, he could heal everything about us except our will. And Gregory points out how strange that would be because he explains that, um, you know, Eve first sinned in the will before she actually took part of eating the fruit. And the same with Adam, you know, he had to will the idea first to partake with Eve before he actually committed the outward physical act of partaking. And so if we don't have a healed will because Jesus didn't assume a human will upon himself, therefore he couldn't heal that human will. Therefore, he could not be our substitute if he could not heal our will, which really is important if you'd ask (laughs) me or uh, Gregory Nazianzus. Gregory of Nazianzus also said, But if he has a soul and yet is without a mind, how is he a man? For man is not a mindless animal. (laughs) So, thinking of man as some brute beast without a will. Yeah, Jesus didn't come to substitute for... mindless beasts he came to substitute for full human beings and so if he didn't have a human will he couldn't substitute for humans that have a will he could only substitute for humans that don't have a will they're just mindless beasts (laughs) and then we also have even statements from the third council of constantinople the decrees statements from that that explained the understanding of how monothelitism was similar to Apollinarianism. So, a quote from the decree from the council, it says, "...a heresy similar to the mad and wicked doctrine of the impious Apollinaris." So, they recognize that. And in the last episode, I mentioned that Maximus the Confessor, who debated against monothelites, had read Gregory of Nazianzus and recognized that the monothelite compromise was a lot like Apollinarianism. And now here's uh, some parts from what's called the Prosphoneticus to the Emperor. So, kind of like a statement of findings from the council to the Emperor. It says, quote, For should we say that the human nature of our Lord is without will and operation? How could we affirm in safety the perfect humanity? And it also says, For how shall we call him perfect in humanity if he in no wise suffered and acted as a man? <laughs> so the statement recognized that without a human will, Jesus could not be fully human. 
and therefore he could not suffer as a man or act as a man, and that therefore he could not be our substitute. So I hope that this makes sense regarding substitutionary atonement and how important it is that Jesus has both the natural human will and the natural divine will, both of them fully intact in the two natures, in one singular person there. He's one person with two natures. Therefore, he has the two natural wills, divine and human, that are components of the respective natures. And that was absolutely necessary. It sounds like like a, a complicated <laughs> lot here, but from the verses we read, you could see that he had to have the full human nature with the human will for the incarnation to be genuine and complete, for him to suffer and be tempted, for therefore for him to be our substitute, and for him to heal our will by his atonement here. Ding dong! Jehovah's Witnesses. Ding! Dong! Mormons! Christian, are you ready to defend the faith when false religions ring your doorbell? Do you know what your Muslim and Jewish friends believe? You will if you get Andrew Rappaport's book, What Do They Believe? When we witness to people, we need to present the truth, but it is very wise to know what they believe, and you will get Andrew Rappaport's book at whatdotheybelieve.com. Now, for the second half of this episode, I want to get into something that this particular council raises. So, if you are Roman Catholic, or perhaps you know Roman Catholics, or at least you're aware of one of the dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church that has been around for over a hundred years, about maybe close to 150 as of this recording, I forget the exact date, but it's around that. (laughs) Um, There's a dogma called papal infallibility. And I would say that a lot of Protestants don't understand what is claimed in papal infallibility. Papal infallibility claims that anyone who holds the office of Pope (laughs) of the Roman Church cannot ultimately die a heretic who has harmed the church you know it's not that the pope can't have any kind of um, personal sins to some degree you know like he's not like perfect like jesus because you know according to the claims of rome peter was the first pope and peter had his faults peter denied jesus peter was reconciled and even after pentecost eventually you had paul withstanding peter saying that peter was living like a gentile Gentile, but uh, you know, this is Galatians chapter 2. Peter was not walking straight according to the truth of the gospel, and that's a pretty serious thing. So, a pope could fall into error, but a pope could be reconciled, or, you know, somehow there's some protection from the pope ultimately dying a heretic and spreading his heresy and destroying the faith of the church. You know, so that's papal infallibility. It doesn't mean that the pope cannot sin or do make mistakes or something like that. At least that's the way it's taught today. (laughs) 
Now, what about Pope Honorius I? Now, of course, when I call him Pope, I'm only using the language of history and how he's referred to. So, Honorius Bishop of Rome, if it makes you feel better. Bishops of Rome were called Pope at this time, but it did not, I would argue, mean the same thing as it did today, as if the Bishop of Rome were the leader of the whole church. You know, basically, he's the Pope of Rome and the Bishop of Constantinople could be the Pope of Constantinople and the Bishop of Antioch likewise because there is a time, you know, in the fourth century where you had Cyprian, Bishop Cyprian, who actually disagreed with um, Bishop Stephen of Rome. Cyprian was also called a pope, even though he never held an office as Bishop of Rome. So, you know, the ancient term of pope, you know, didn't mean in at least the first half of church history here, like, you know, what how it's used today as a term for the Bishop of Rome, and that it entails some kind of of ultimate authority over the entire church. There was still political differences between the East and the West at the time of the Third Council of Constantinople, as there was, you know, almost from the beginning of church history. And this is not to say that the Bishop of Rome was small potatoes here, you know, because in the West, the most influential position would be the Bishop of Rome. So he ultimately had high clout in the Western region. And then in the eastern, the Greek region, you had several popes and, you know, you had the, you know, several bishops, the Bishop of Antioch and Constantinople and Jerusalem and so on. So even to this day, you have the the different patriarchs in the, the Orthodox churches, the Greek Orthodox church, you know, they recognize kind of like um, a plurality of elders there, um, a consensus of bishops, but they don't hold to the idea that there's one bishop who is over the whole church. But the Roman Catholic Church does because, you know, you have the East-West split and then Rome kind of ends off, goes off as its own church and then the Orthodox churches are kind of their own church and geography played a whole, a big part in this. So with the Roman Empire, you have one, you know, big seat of Rome and in the Eastern Empire, you have plenty of big seats there, you know, with um, historically as after Constantine set up a bishop of Constantinople. He created the city of Constantinople, made it uh, elaborate, and then the bishop of Constantinople would get some authority because in the 7th century here with this controversy of monothelitism, Sergius I was patriarch of Constantinople and he was close to Emperor Heraclius. So the bishop of Constantinople during the time when the East and West were still considered part of one church, you know, Constantinople was also a major source of religio-political power. <laughs> now, what about Honorius? Remember that I mentioned from the previous episode that Honorius sent letter to Sergius affirming the idea, he said the words, we decree that Jesus, you know, has one will. 
And so the council, 40 years after Honorius's death, at some point recognized, you know, as the monothelite position was waning and being refuted and the tide was turning in favor of the orthodox position, Honorius was then being recognized as not so orthodox here. So, let's look at uh, some of the sessions, then some of the documents and statements, and I think you will notice a pattern here about Honorius. So, in the 13th session of the council, several letters from Honorius were ordered to be burned, including the one from Honorius to Sergius. So, we don't have the luxury now of being able to read those letters in full. But we know that he wrote a letter, we have what's quoted from it, that we decree that Jesus has one will, but the practice of burning things was to burn heresies. (laughs) Also, a statement, what was said at the 13th session, it says, quote, And in addition to these, we decide that Honorius also, who was Pope of Elder Rome, be with them cast out of the holy church of God and be anathematized with them because we have found by his letter to Sergius that he followed his opinion in all things and confirmed his wicked dogmas, So you have this statement against the bishop of Rome. Well, posthumously, you know, Honorius was not alive at this time. So you have a posthumous or post-death declaration that Honorius is anathematized. Now, I hope you don't get upset by the wording Pope of Elder Rome, you know, because other people were called Pope, okay? (laughs) This was not the same as how we refer to Pope Francis today. But also notice that it says Pope of Old Rome or Elder Rome. There's other statements like that. Rome at this time, at this time, was called Old Rome (laughs) because, you know, after Constantine wanted the headquarters of the empire, basically moved from Rome to Constantinople, he deemed Constantinople New Rome, and then, you know, Rome, the current Rome, the current city of Rome was often called Old Rome. <laughs> it's kind of interesting, the, the imperial politics there, but even the, the decree, the, you know, statements referring to Honorius, it'll refer to him as Pope of Old Rome, and things will still, at this time, refer to Constantinople as New New Rome, (laughs) much to the chagrin of, you know, (laughs) the Roman Catholics, I would say. So that was the 13th session of the Third Council of Constantinople that we talked about last episode. Now, in the 16th session, the bishops exclaimed, quote, to Sergius the heretic, anathema, to Cyrus the heretic, anathema, to Honorius the heretic, anathema. And, you know, as you've seen from other controversies in prior councils, if someone declared someone a heretic and anathema, you assume that if they didn't hold to the truth of the gospel and if they died confessing that, then they're separated from the church. They're not among the saints. They're not among those who would be considered saved. And to say to Honorius the heretic anathema of one who died and they're basically proclaiming that he never repented, they're stating, just like with Sergius and Cyrus here, that he died as a heretic. 
So at this time, on the seventh count, the, the sixth ecumenical council, the third council of Constantinople, dealing with the question of monothelitism, it doesn't seem like anyone here believed in the dogma of papal infallibility that would be formulated in the nineteen in the eighteen hundreds. Then you have, okay, here's from the letter from the council to Agatha. So Agatha was the bishop of Rome at this time during the council. Eventually he died and then uh, Leo II succeeded him. But the letter from the council to Agatha, and Agatha was kind of sickly at this time. It says, quote, and we slew them with the anathema as lapsed concerning the faith and as sinners in the morning outside the camp of the tabernacle of God. And then continuing down further in the statement, and their names are these, Theodore, Bishop of Faran, Sergius, Honorius, Cyrus, Paul, Pyrrhus, and Peter, unquote. So, a letter from the council to the current bishop of Rome at this time, who was near his deathbed, it says that they slew these people with the anathema, and it says that they lapsed concerning the faith. They're outside the tabernacle of God. Honorius's name is listed in the letter here from the council, an ecumenical council, claiming that Honorius is among names of people who are slain with the anathema. I don't see how you can claim papal infallibility here. Now, let's look at the decree, the official decree from this council. Here are some portions. Quote, In this God-protected and royal city of Constantinople, New Rome, so I just want to throw that in there so I explain that at this time, the whole church, because of Constantine and the, the geography and the politics of the empire, they would refer to Constantinople as New Rome and Rome in Italy as Old Rome. Now, another part, having driven away the impious heir. So, yes, indeed, they recognized that monothelitism was a serious heir. Here's another quote, and chasing away the impious doctrines of irreligion. Can you see that, you know, they didn't, they weren't really generous toward monothelitism here. Now, here's a quote from the statement itself, the statement of faith, the decree of the council mentioning Honorius, uh, referring to the devil, quote, having found suitable instruments for working out his will, we mean Theodorus, who was Bishop of Ferran, Sergius, Pyrrhus, Paul, and Peter, who were archbishops of this royal city, and moreover, Honorius, who was Pope of the Elder Rome, Cyrus, Bishop of Alexandria, Marcarius, who was lately Bishop of Antioch, and Stephen, his disciple has actively employed them in raising up for the whole church the stumbling blocks of one will and one operation in the two natures of Christ, our true God, one of the Holy Trinity, unquote. So, the decree from an ecumenical council that the Roman Catholic Church recognizes says that the devil basically found a fit tool in Honorius. And now, I did quote referring to other things from the Prosphoneticus to the Emperor, so basically a, a post-council letter from the council to the Emperor, but here's what it has to say about Honorius, quote, But we cast out of the church and rightly subject to anathema all superfluous novelties as well as their inventors 
to wit, Theodore of Ferran, Sergius and Paul, Pyrrhus and Peter, who were archbishops of Constantinople, moreover Cyrus, who bore the priesthood of Alexandria, and with them Honorius, who was the ruler of Rome. And he followed them in these things, unquote. So they cast out of the church and rightly subject to anathema, Pope Honorius? What happened to papal infallibility? Also from this letter, quote, Likewise, also that old man Polychronius with an infantile intelligence who promised he would raise the dead and who, when they did not raise, was laughed at, unquote. Yeah, I liked that part because I mentioned Polychronius, <laughs> the monothelite priest, last episode, who during the council tried to claim that monothelitism is true and that he could prove it by raising the dead. <laughs> I got a kick out of that part. (laughs) He was laughed at. (laughs) So now, here's the imperial edict. Once the council, the third council of Constantinople, also known as the sixth ecumenical council, the emperor, along with the approval of the bishops, wrote an imperial decree that was put on a building. It says, quote, the heresy of Apollinaris, etc., has been renewed by Theodore of Ferran and confirmed by Honorius, sometime Pope of Old Rome, who also contradicted himself, unquote. So Honorius is mentioned there as confirming a heresy of the Apollinarians. So monothelitism is similar to Apollinarianism, which was also recognized as a heresy 300 years earlier. Now, continuing, quote, He, referring to the emperor, anathematized all heretics from Simon Magus, but especially the originator and patrons of the new heresy, Theodore and Sergius, also Pope Honorius, who was their adherent and patron in everything and confirmed the heresy, and ordained that no one henceforth should hold a different faith or venture to teach one will and one energy, in no other than the Orthodox faith could men be saved, unquote. So it, it sounds like they're clearly saying that Honorius, among others, you know, they didn't hold to the Orthodox faith and therefore they were not saved. Um, yeah, that's a Pope of Rome. Now, the Trulan canons in 692, these were Eastern canons added kind of post facto to the decree of Constantinople III, because, you know, unlike a lot of the other councils before, they had canons along with the decree, but Constantinople III only had their decree, so this, a few years later, added some canons to the council, the decree. And from the Trulan canons in 692, which was less than 10 years after the council, the canon said, quote, This council taught that we should openly profess our faith that in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, our true God, there are two natural wills or volitions and two natural operations and condemned by a just sentence those who adulterated the true doctrine and taught the people that in the one Lord Jesus Christ there is but one will and one operation, to wit, Theodore of Ferran, Cyrus of Alexandria, Honorius of Rome, Sergius, Pyrrhus, Paul, and Peter, who were bishops of this God-preserved city. 
Marcarius, who was Bishop of Antioch, Stephen, who was his disciple, and the insane Polychronius, depriving them henceforth from the communion of the body of Christ our God, unquote. So, the canons, <laughs> the Trulan canons, which were added to Constantinople, said that Honorius of Rome, among these other names listed, are condemned by a just sentence, and they're deprived from the communion of the body of Christ our God. So, that seems like a strong statement, saying that Honorius is not <laughs> saved. He was a heretic. <laughs> And then, let's mention that every bishop of Rome from the 8th to the 11th century initiated his office by taking an oath. And a part of this oath says that it, quote, smites with eternal anathema the originators of the new heresy, Sergius, etc., together with Honorius, because he assisted the base assertion of the heretics, unquote. So every bishop, in taking the oath to assume his office for several centuries, the 8th to the 11th century, took an oath condemning Honorius. (laughs) So that does seem to run afoul of the idea, the dogma of the modern Roman Catholic Church of papal infallibility. Because, as you could see, as you just heard, there were lots and lots of statements in full agreement, in ecumenical agreement, by the, the whole church here both east and west, that Honorius was a heretic. And he's listed along with other names, you know, condemned with anathema. (laughs) So if you're going to anathematize Arius, who promoted the kind of Jehovah's Witness type teaching of Jesus, it's the same language used of Honorius, Pope of old Rome. (laughs) So how have some modern Roman Catholics dealt with this? And they don't all agree. Uh, modern Catholic apologists don't quite all agree with how to handle Honorius. They're going to teach papal infallibility, but how they actually fit the puzzle piece of Honorius into this puzzle, and I would say puzzling puzzle, of papal infallibility is different. So here's one line of defense. given all that we've seen that clearly smites Honorius with anathema, we have Pope Leo II. He was the successor to Agatha, who was uh, kind of on his deathbed during the Council of Constantinople here. And Leo II, being his successor, wrote a letter to the Spanish bishops. He says, quote, with Honorius, who did not, as become the apostolic authority, extinguish the flame of heretical teaching in its first beginning, but fostered it by his negligence, unquote. So, trying to be a little lenient on Honorius, this quote is to say, well, <laughs> what matters is what the Pope of Rome says, and the Pope of Rome writing a letter to bishops, because we claim that, you know, the, the Pope of Rome, the Bishop of Rome, is the bishop of over the whole church, and his opinion is really what settles the matter as to how we interpret the language of councils and creeds and stuff. And so, Honorius's problem is that he did not extinguish the flame of heretical teaching in its first beginning. So, Honorius can't be a heretic proper because he did not 
fight for this heresy and succeed in getting it to destroy the church. And so that's one way we can save Honorius. And another is, it says he fostered it by his negligence. And that became a big word for some Catholic apologists. So Patrick Madrid, if you've seen him, he's he's a Catholic apologist. He wrote a book called Pope Fiction, and he's one who takes this line that, you know, Honorius was guilty of negligence, and he wasn't really a formal heretic like, say, Arius. But what about some other Catholics? We look at when this uh, dogma of, of papal infallibility was being formulated in the late 19th century, the 1800s here, you have the famous Cardinal John Henry Newman, so a cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church. So John Henry Newman was a, a former Anglican scholar who converted from Anglicanism to the uh, Roman Catholic Church. And he's one, if you see Catholics, they love to quote him saying, you know, to go deep into history is to cease to be Protestant. So they, you know, they love that. They're going to rub that in your face. But during this time, during his life, he saw the dogma of papal infallibility being formulated, and it was going to be discussed and dogmatized at the First Vatican Council, and he expressed his concerns because he was afraid that history, the truth of history, could be compromised by a, a dogma like this that might force people to look at history through the lens of anachronism. And we do indeed see that because at this time there was a bishop named Hephele who was a member of the Vatican Council and he seemed to view uh, history indeed through this lens of the dogma of papal infallibility and he actually claimed that Honorius's letters were ex cathedra or like an official statement addressing matters of faith and morals from the Pope as the Pope. So he said that Honorius's letters were indeed ex cathedra and he actually said that the third council of constantinople actually erred in anathematizing honorius so we see someone that could be sympathetic to monothelitism because of the dogma of papal infallibility and saying well maybe you know honorius because, you know, when Protestants debate Catholics over Honorius and the fact that Honorius wrote letters, most Catholic apologists will claim that Honorius's letters were not ex cathedra. So he wasn't formally promoting a heresy as the Bishop of Rome. But yes, he wrote the letter as the Bishop of Rome to the Bishop of Constantinople. You know, that was the whole purpose of Sergius writing to Honorius wanting his consent to monothelitism, or at this time, monoenergism. And Honorius wrote back a letter as the Bishop of Rome. That was the whole purpose of this correspondence, to say, we decree that Jesus has one will. And so, yeah, so what's interesting here is that Bishop Hephele, uh, as a member of the First Vatican Council, one of the ecumenical councils of the Roman Church, you know, that dogmatized papal infallibility, actually agrees with some Protestants to argue that Honorius's letters were from the seat of the Pope, acting as the Pope, and therefore shows that Pope Honorius I was actually proclaiming, you know, 
know, dogma in some form by his letter as a statement from the office of the Pope. So, Catholic apologists, as I mentioned, Patrick Madrid, and I think, if I remember correctly, Tim Staples argue that Honorius was guilty of negligence, not a mortal heresy. But another Roman Catholic apologist, Robert Syngenis, uh, actually argues that Honorius was guilty of a soul-destroying heresy, but papal infallibility applies to him in a different way and actually protects him from anathema that because of his office, he could not successfully infect the church with it. And yes, we do indeed see that monothelitism died out, but Honorius was instrumental in making it... You know, a bigger controversy than it was because, as the authority of the Bishop of Rome, he gave his credence to it. Yeah, so you have different defenses of papal infallibility in a way to rescue Honorius from the strength of the anathema that is clearly given in history over and over and over again. That a Pope of Rome is indeed condemned along with these other names, smitten with the anathema, cast out of the church. <laughs> And so, I hope that this episode was a little help. I hope that we didn't get overwhelmed a little bit with information here, but the point being that monothelitism is wrong because it compromises substitutionary atonement. And that this same controversy, the same council clearly argues against the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church of papal infallibility regarding Honorius I, who was bishop or pope of old Rome. And that Roman Catholic apologists will have different arguments to try to save Honorius by defending papal infallibility. So, Papal infallibility being a novel doctrine within the last 150 years or so of church history. Yeah, it does indeed force people who have to be loyal defenders of Rome to view history and the clear statements of history that contradict a dogma like this, a modern dogma. They have to be anachronistic. They have to view it through the lens of that modern dogma and because they want to make that that dogma was always a teaching of the church, but just got formally recognized as a dogma. And therefore, what is clearly said in history cannot mean what it obviously means because my papal infallibility. (laughs) And so on that note, this ends the series asking the question, is Jesus like a superhero? And Yes, Jesus is not like any superhero, and really no superhero or supervillain in this case can ever adequately represent the makeup or the identity of Jesus. Because if they could, then what I said before about the how of things, the metaphysics of things, you know, that's not what Christianity is all about. We boldly proclaim that Jesus is one person of the Son, with two full natures, divine and human. And without that truth, there is no means of salvation. There is no substitutionary atonement, which is absolutely essential to the gospel. And in that lies 
the bulwark of all reality, the foundation of all reality. There can be no reality apart from the truth of God in his word, the truth of the identity of Jesus and the gospel, with which there can be no gospel without the orthodox teaching of who Jesus is. So, as we end this, I hope that this helps in understanding the gospel and that you can be bold in teaching who Jesus truly is. And stay tuned for the next episode of Truth Espresso, and God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.